morning. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. Uh, and I am too grateful for the air conditioning working. I got a text from John earlier this week saying, Tim, just heads up, uh, the AC is out. Like, okay. And it reminded me last summer we were preaching, or I was visiting one of our churches in Quincy, Massachusetts. This is an older church. I think it was built in about 1854. And you can imagine they have different uh, systems in older buildings. And the windows didn't open, and there was no cross breeze that could get you through the building. And shall we say, it was warm. So I am grateful for technology and a working system this morning. And that actually leads into things that happen in life that, that we, we like to be in control, right? Who, who here is willing to admit they like to be in control of things? Yeah, thank you. And I'm sure the ones that didn't raise your hand, you're, well, let's, you're maybe not telling the truth. I like being in control. I like things in order. I like systems. I like lists. And all of that was disabused when we had kids. And of course, when you have younger kids, you think that you're in control. Think, right? Key operative word there. You think you're in control. You want to control the details. You want to take them places. You want things to happen just so. You want them to go to the right schools. Think about that. And then they grow up and they leave home and we're in the place where we are, uh, the kids are off the family payroll, let's put it that way. And uh, we have moved from being directors to being consultants. (laughs) You know the difference, right? Your kids are out, they're gone, and you're now, they consult with you when they might need something. But that's okay. So I've, I've entitled today's message, God's in Control, Now, the title says, we're not, and I'll say, I'm not, but that's a very good thing. And we want to look at God's word, but but here's the thing. You like predictions, right? Think of what we've gone through these last years. We think we know what's happening. We think we know what's before us, and we try to predict that, and we try to, to, to lock onto that pathway, but the reality is circumstances change, issues change in our life and we might be going a different path. But, but humans like to predict, and that's related to our desire and need to be in control. Well, I want to share a couple of really interesting quotes. And I could go on, but I picked out four that are really interesting. The Quarterly Review of 1825 asked, what can be more palpably absurd than the prospect of locomotives traveling twice as fast as stagecoaches. Okay, a few years later, seven years before the introduction of anesthesia in 1846, a French surgeon said, the abolishment of pain in surgery is a chimera. And if you don't know what a chimera is, it's a thing hoped for but not achieved. Fast forward again, about another hundred years. So in the 1940s, in the computer field, IBM chairman Thomas Watson predicted a world market for five computers. Thomas Watson, IBM. In 1956, 
the British royal astronomer Richard van der Riet Woolley said, space travel is utter bilge. Okay, all of those predictions were dead wrong. Now, further detail. It has been calculated that two-thirds or more of the forecasts made by American social scientists between 1945 and 1980 have proven to be mistakes. But yet, we still try to do that. And these were some of the smartest people ever to walk the face of the earth. So today we're going to look at a passage from the book of Ecclesiastes. You probably haven't spent much time there. And I confess I haven't. Wisdom literature in the Old Testament is often a challenge to read because it's, there's meaning in there and we really need the help of the Holy Spirit as we look into the meaning of these passages. But Ecclesiastes was, was intended for those mature and experienced enough to deal with dark and difficult questions. So let me read our passage for today. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That, the same event, happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go on to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in the evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now if you, you simply take that passage at face value, it can seem rather dark, right? 
And so this is where we need to dig into and tear it apart and understand what is it that God is trying to say to us today. All of Solomon's writings uh, relating to the futility of life are there for a purpose. They are there to help us to seek fulfillment and happiness in God alone. He is directing our hopes to the only one who can truly fulfill and give our life meaning. In Ecclesiastes, this book disabuses the notion, whoops, sorry, I predicted this would happen. (laughs) Bear with me. Ecclesiastes disabuses the notion that we can control the events in our lives. And the idea that we can have this kind of control is really just a myth. So the first point that I'd like us to draw from this passage is that life is unpredictable. And we find that in verses 1 through 3. Solomon here speaks again of death. However, he has a different take on it. He is stating that no matter whether we are righteous or wicked, we share a common destiny. And this passage is somewhat confusing because it it makes it seem like uh, the righteous have the same fate as the wicked. Well, he is actually right in the temporal sense, meaning on this earth. And, and we can get caught up with this, well, isn't this just a fatalistic mindset? Well, not really. Solomon is not speaking about the afterlife in these uh, passages. And the, the concept of afterlife in the Hebrew uh, mind was, was somewhat of a vague concept, even though King David himself spoke about the afterlife. Verse 2 in this passage emphasizes, emphasizes the point of life's unpredictability by delineating several pairs of opposites. And I'll just run through these rather quickly. The righteous and the wicked, good, bad, clean, unclean, those who offer sacrifices, those who don't. The good man versus the sinner. Those who take oaths versus those who do not. He's saying that the righteous and the wise against expectation will experience love and hate, good or evil. The point Solomon is making, there's one thing that's predictable in this life. And that is that we all die physically. We all come to a conclusion when these earthly bodies and I'm getting north of a certain age where I'm reminded that uh, I need to visit the body and fender shop more often as my body begins to show age. All else is really out of our control. He's saying life is a mixed bag. Death awaits us all. Well, it's a really good thing that I'm not going to stop there because we need to move on to hope. And so what is it that that Solomon is saying to us as we move on in this passage? Gordon Fee, who was one of my professors at Gordon-Conwell, said this about Ecclesiastes. The emphasis of Ecclesiastes is that Solomon is instructing how we are to live wisely in the world where the only certainty is death and judgment. And another commentator says this about the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to lead us to seek fulfillment and happiness in God alone. So let's keep going here. Verses four through six, second point. Life has hope. 
Solomon says that the living can have hope. And he punctuates this with a very strange proverb. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now that may not seem so strange to us because we think of dogs as household pets. Many of you in this room probably have a dog that you love. It's like a member of your family. Well, that was not the case in the ancient Near East. Dogs were not pets. They were considered dirty and just you wouldn't have one as a pet. Now, side note, I was doing some biblical archaeology while in graduate school, and I was actually working in what was a dog cemetery. And it, it, was, it puzzled uh, the archaeologists because we didn't really know what that was all about because it was such an, a countercultural thing from that period. But the point is that dogs were reviled, they were dirty, they were horrible animals. What was Solomon's point? His point is that once we are no longer in this world, we don't have hope. While we're alive, we can have hope. We can have further reward. We can be remembered. We can love. We can hate. We can have a part in everything under the sun. Pastor Chuck Swindoll in his book, Living on the Ragged Edge, puts it this way. As long as there is life, there's a dream. There's the anticipation of a new plan. There's love. There's purpose. In one word, along with life comes the presence of hope. And for the follower of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter puts it this way. In 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power by the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. So what is this living hope that Peter is talking about? By definition, a living hope is a hope that has life. A hope that has life is one that never fades away or dies. Things in this world, things that we live in in our culture, here in Ridgefield, here in the surrounding areas, there's a lot of things, there are material things that we strive for, that we possess but those things all go away. And as a follower of Christ, we want to keep our eyes, and I'll, I'll unpack this a little bit later, but, but we want to put our hope and our trust in things that are eternal, things that are sure, certain, and real because of our faith in our living Lord Jesus Christ. And that hope that is firmly placed in Christ cannot fade. Only Jesus Christ, and the message of the gospel is certain and constant. So Solomon, the king, that wise person, has established that even while life is unpredictable, life has hope. And I say it this way, even if he's done it in a backhanded way. But he doesn't stop there. And he brings us to our third point. Life has meaning and purpose. Solomon is now saying, enjoy life, make the most of it. But he's not talking about hedonism 
Well, what is hedonism? Hedonism can be summed up as pleasure is the highest good. Or, in its ethical formulation, whatever causes pleasure is right. Now, Solomon isn't talking about that. He does say, seek joy where it may be found. Verse 7 says, go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. And in verse 8, it's illustrated with this image of being clothed in white and being anointed with oil. Well, what does that illustration convey? To be clothed in white and to be anointed with oil are outward signs of joy. This image conveys a festive and celebratory atmosphere. Solomon is saying, uh, saying that we are to enjoy life as God's gift. And then he concludes this section with verses 11 and 12. He reiterates the unexpectedness and the uncertainties of life. Bad things happening to good people, good things happening to bad people. And whereas Solomon speaks of the fulfilled life as pursue what you can while you can, there's a different pathway for the follower of Christ. And so the question we must ask ourselves is, what does the fulfilled life look like? And those of you in this room probably know that. You know that pursuing a certain pathway doesn't always bring fulfillment. I learned this about my own business career, that despite the hours and the toil, and, and Sharon can share with you just how she had to have what I call a come-to-Jesus conversation with me about just the, the number of hours I was putting in in pursuit of a career. And I actually carried this into my first position in the church. And I'll share a pretty, pretty vulnerable story. Our kids were young, and uh, she was driving by the church I served, and, and uh, our son, who was probably about five at the time, uh, said to Sharon, Mom, does Dad sleep at the church? I'm not proud of that. What I had gotten into was, was that I was toiling and working and, and doing the things of ministry, and yet I was neglecting, neglecting my most important ministry. That was to my wife and my kids. And I'll say this, Sharon had the courage to tell me that. Now I confess, I didn't maybe respond the right way at the right time, but we worked through it. We're still married almost 33 years. But the point is, what are we pursuing? Even if it can be in, quote unquote, in ministry. Are we pursuing work the work of ministry in my case, or are we pursuing relationship with Almighty God? So what does the fulfilled life look like? And I'll pause here and state this, is that I believe that time is short in this world. I mean, all we have to do is just see the rapidity at which things are changing and moving and not necessarily heading in a right direction that we would see. If anything, for the follower of Christ, that should give us a sense of urgency, a sense of urgency that we need to, to reach out, to share, to connect with those that desperately need to know our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and share the message of the gospel with them. I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at a passage that I've kind of been living in this past year because I think it helps us understand who we are pursuing and how we are to do it. So I want to turn first to Colossians chapter 3. It says this, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The writer, the Apostle Paul, talks about the pursuit of living the Christian life. And this passage follows this incredible hymn of worship in which Paul talks about the supremacy of Christ. And I want to read portions of that because it helps give a context of then chapter 3 that I just read. And this is what he says about Christ. Chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And I want you to pay attention to these last couple of verses. And you, that means all of us, who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil things, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." So that passage about the preeminence of Christ and how we have been redeemed sets the context of how we are to focus our hearts and our minds. And I think there are, there are two phrases here that are vitally important. Setting your hearts, verse 1, and setting your minds. If you were to dig into the concept in the the biblical language here, the big idea is that basically it's your guts, right? And that sounds kind of crude. But in the Hebrew mind, your, your heart and your mind was the totality of your being. All that you are, you're to focus your heart and your mind on things above. I confess that that's hard, right? If I, if I try that, meaning in my own strength, in my own power, my own volition, I can't do that. It's just not possible. I can try really hard. It lasts about 30 seconds. 
So for the follower of Christ, that's where this idea of, it's, it's counterintuitive, right? The more I want to be in control, the less I'm actually in control. The more I surrender and give up control to who? The Spirit of God. The more that I am able to follow, I am able to focus the totality of my being. So we become less, he becomes more when we follow and we pursue. Those in Christ continue to live on earth in our mortal bodies. But we have this new life that we have embarked on because of the relationship we have with Christ. Our interests are to be centered in him and on him. We must pursue those things which belong to the heavenly realm with our minds, our attitudes, our posture, our ambitions, our pursuits. I could keep going. Our whole outlook must be characterized by the living bond with Christ. This is a life that has meaning. Pastor John Piper says it this way in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display his supreme excellence in all spheres of life. The wasted life is a life without passion. God calls us to pray and think and dream and plan and work, not to be made much of, but to make much of him in every part of our lives. So let's draw this out a little bit more. Because I'm not saying that you have to give up what you're doing, your careers, all of that. That's not what I'm talking about. But think about where you are. Whether you're a stay-at-home person, whether you're in school, whether you're in the marketplace, whether you're in education. Whatever you do, think about not just what you're pursuing, but how you're doing it. Are you pursuing things in a way that allows the winsomeness of Christ to flow in and through you so that folks you rub shoulders with understand there's something different about Tim. There's something different about how he comports himself, carries himself, so that I'm attracted to that character to understand what's different about you. So the person who is allowing the spirit to work, the pursuit of things not, excuse me, things above, not things below, that's allowing God to work in you and through you to have people stand up and take notice or collectively as a congregation. I shared this a little bit when I'm here, but how is God working through you as a congregation so that people who are in this community and belong see that there's a role, a part that this congregation is playing that allows the gospel to be winsome in this community. How might you do that as individuals and as a congregation? So life is unpredictable. The good news is life has hope 
and life has meaning. Jonathan Edwards, that early pastor in this part of the world, in a sermon, it's a really long sermon title, so I won't read the whole title. Basically, the the summary title is Heavenly Pilgrim. And it's a little bit older language, but, but bear with me for a moment. I want to read this quote from this sermon. We should be endeavoring to come nearer to heaven in being more heavenly, becoming more and more like the inhabitants of heaven in respect to holiness and conformity to God, the knowledge of God and of Christ, in clear views of the glory of God, the beauty of Christ, and the excellency of divine things, as we come nearer to the beatific vision. We should labor to be continually growing in divine love, that this may be an increasing flame in our hearts till they ascend holy in this flame. What Edwards is talking about is a life that's well lived, a life of pursuit after the things above. I shared with someone earlier that my dad kind of boiled this down to a pretty pithy phrase. If you focus on things above, you won't go down. Or another way he said it is, keep looking up and you won't go down. That's the idea, folks, this morning, as we think about our lives and what are we pursuing. How are we fixed on those things that are above? Because things here, while they can be fulfilling, ultimately don't bring true fulfillment. Or, in many cases, we are greatly disappointed. We are hurt by things that happen on this earth. And if we don't have hope, and the hope that comes from the gospel, we can be in a bad way. So my prayer for you today is what is it that you're pursuing? And how are you pursuing the things that are above, not the things below? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for the truth. And Father, as we've come together this morning, Uh, We are deeply grateful for uh, how you work in our lives. We are grateful for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy that you have shown to us. We thank you for the opportunity to come as your people and to sing, raise our praises to you. We thank you that we have shared in the reading of your word together, and we thank you that we have shared in the proclamation of your word. Continue, Father, to help us to follow the path. Not that we can do it on our own, but it's through the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name.